Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. Hello, this is Amy Ellis, the Director of Quality and Value-Based Care at Northwest Medical Specialties, and I will be interviewing key opinion leaders about what is being done on the ground to transform care. Today, I am speaking with Jeff Honeycutt, the CEO of Highlands Oncology Group. Hi, Jeff. Thank you so much for taking the time to get on the call today. I'm excited to ask you some questions and share your knowledge with um, the AJMC listeners. Can you tell me a little bit about your you and your practice? Sure. So I'm the, the CEO for Highlands Oncology Group. Uh, we're in the northwestern corner of the state of Arkansas. A uh, little bit about this area. Uh, it's the home of Walmart, Tyson Chicken, J.B. Hunt, which are three Fortune 500 businesses. It's one of the fastest growing areas in the country, which is surprising to hear about little old Arkansas, but it is growing at a rapid rate. Uh, a bit about our practice in particular. We have 11 medical oncologists, three radiation oncologists, two surgical oncologists in the specialties of GYN and colorectal, and that's an expanding service line for us. Uh, we have two board-certified palliative care physicians, 18 advanced practitioners, and we have over 450 staff members. So it's a, it's a you know, medium to large-sized practice, um, but definitely growing every day. Wow, sounds like it. And you guys are an OCM practice, and you're in a couple other value-based models as well? That's correct. We are an OCM practice, uh, have been since uh, the summer of 2016 when that program kicked off. Uh, we also just in January of 2019, so just earlier this year, signed on to be part of the Humana Oncology Model of Care program, which is a, it's good for us. It's only, it's only a smaller percentage of our population, but still just kind of helps to reinforce to our staff and to the community that value-based care is something that we're serious about and, uh, and building our practice around. Right. That actually leads perfectly into my, uh, my next question. I was going to say, you know, how, now that you're in value-based care and you're in OCM, you know, you and your practice, how do you, your providers, your staff, your team define value? Yeah, it's a good question. It's funny because there's a lot of debate about about just that word value uh, and how we've we've how oncology in particular has made this big push over the last oh three four years or so towards a value based care model. But yet, some people have trouble defining the word value. For me, I, I start by looking at a consumer perspective, regardless of the medical industry. And value in that arena is when you get something that's high quality for a good price. So I kind of taking that basic. Uh, explanation or that basic definition for value and putting that in oncology, the perspective from oncology is that you're providing the highest possible quality of care while you're keeping the patient cost as low as possible. Now, obviously, there are some barriers to, to achieving those, but there's a, I think there's a perfect balance that we, can, that we can strike by really keeping the quality high, and that's through finding you know, commonly agreed upon metrics in the industry that various practices see as, as being valuable to the patient. Uh, bringing the patient into that discussion too to make sure it is truly valuable to them. Uh, but then looking in the practice, like, gosh, you know, there's only so much we can control from a financial perspective, but what are the areas where we can move the needle and we can help make the the, the, the cancer journey more affordable to patients? Because it is, it is one of the more expensive medical specialties that's there. And it's something that, that we do, we do need to find ways to be creative to, to move that. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that you know, especially with all the new therapies coming onto the market and how expensive those are going to be. And so being able to control, right, you know, there's so many things out of our control, but control, get a better, better control on the things that we can and make that 
you know, a better experience for the patient. What would you say is the biggest challenge at your practice when it comes to, you know, delivering that cost-effective, high-quality care that you were referencing? Sure. I think you already called it out and then got it right on the head, actually. The, the cost of therapy is something that's a huge, huge barrier. It seems like every time a, a, a new therapy comes out, it's being priced out at its base level is more expensive than the one that was before it. And it's just not a sustainable model to just to build something on where just everything is based just on what the cost was before. And you're starting to see some you know, emergence of biosimilars and generics, but uh, you have you have pharma you know, pharma companies and um, ins- and insurance companies that are kind of teaming up to choose more expensive therapies, even or to mandate more expensive therapies. And so it really it makes it very very difficult on the practice to kind of to to play within these rules that are really working against the core concept of value-based care in some ways. Uh, and drug drug costs is a huge one, a huge component of that. Another one for us is, is just the lack of control in, regarding, in regard to external expenses like hospital expenses. There's, you know, there's a lot we can do as a practice to limit the use of ER and hospital admissions and, and things of that sort. But once we, there are certain circumstances where, gosh, you know, it just makes sense for the patient to go to the hospital or to go to the ER. There's really no control at that point for um, the expense that occurs inside of that facility. And that's going to be a tough nut to crack, but it is something that, that has a direct impact on your success or lack of ability to, to succeed in a value-based care model. You know, what's interesting, that's a good point, you know, the, the hospital expenses that you can't control and just other specialists that we send our patients to, right? Like we actually right. had a case right. recently where we recognized that the patient needed to go to urology. We recognized there was an issue. We wanted to event hospital utilization. So we sent the patient to the urologist and the urologist turned around and sent the patient to the ER. And so we, you know, that person felt so defeated because we just did what we were supposed to. We sent to the specialist who we thought was going to manage the problem, but then they turn around and sent the patient to the ER. So, you know, there's situations like that that you're like, oh man, I did everything right, but then the patient still ended up in the hospital. Are you guys doing any work with, you know, the specialists in your area to have value-based care conversations? Have you guys started trying to, it's hard to say hold them accountable because I don't believe they're in payment models that are holding them accountable. But are you guys mm-hmm. talking with with your your market? We've had some success doing that. One of the one of the programs that we have here at Highlands um, is a pretty robust lung cancer screening program. And I know that lung cancer screening programs are common across the country. Uh, ours has had a lot of success just in the number of patients that we've scanned. In, in the last three years, we scanned almost five thousand patients, which is which is a significantly higher number than most programs. And the way we've been able to do that is by making the program completely free to the patient. One of the, the key components of making it free, we don't, we don't have our own pathology group on staff. That's something that we have, have to use a third-party group in order to make the program successful. So having that third-party, getting them on the same page to understand that this, this program, it, it makes sense you know, for them to, to offer their services at no cost as well. Because at making this program truly free, uh, it allows more patients to come in. More patients come in. We find a cancer, which is an astounding number, but in one out of 30 patients scanned out of those 4,000 or almost 5,000, we found a cancer of some sort. So those patients, you're finding them at you know stage one, stage two, early stage, where you're able to make a significant difference in their overall cost of care and their their you know their prognosis overall. Um, so that's one area where we've had some success of dealing with a third party, getting them to realize that. It makes sense to do something at a reduced cost or at no cost 
so that you can benefit the patient experience overall, but also drive down that cost of care. That's really great. I mean, population health, we've got more sick care than we have health care. So it sounds like you're moving in that direction with trying to manage the patients or identify, you know, these cancers before they are metastatic. Um, but that actually is perfect segue to my question about patient experience. You know, what are you guys doing to improve the patient experience? I mean, it sounds like you've got this great lung cancer screening program that's actually free to the patient. And what else do you guys have going on? Yeah, well, it starts for us, it starts with really basic building blocks. Um, and I think these are some things that get overlooked, but uh, allowing the patient to feel like they're truly valued as a person in our community. So when they actually walk through the door, knowing them by name before they ever get up to the counter and say who they are, um, it starts with that frontline contact with your staff. Um, and I can't tell you how many times something as simple as that is is noted by, by a patient in either a piece of fa- Facebook feedback or uh, a patient satisfaction survey where they're saying, the first thing is, they, they know my name. And it seems so simple, but it's so important to start with those basics. And then from there, you know, the staff that have that, that touch, a lot of that touch, it's your, you know, your front desk people, your MAs, your nurses, for them to invest the time that they can just to get to know a little bit about the patient. Uh, you know, because this is, a, this is a journey that this patient's going to be on for you know, anywhere from a few months to a few years. And it can be very unpredictable and very stressful. And to have that have the staff become part of the patient's family. It's impossible to measure, but it, it does so much for the patient experience. But on top of that, we, we offer a pretty robust service line. Um, so we have, as we've already discussed, we have medical oncology and radiation oncology, surgery, palliative care, imaging, breast cancer care clinics, lung cancer screening, multidisciplinary clinics, PTOT, massage therapy, all kinds of stuff. And I think while I could keep listing off things that we have in our practice, it really comes back to the to the point of trying to trying to make your cancer center as robust as possible as far as just keeping those services inside of your walls. It really provides some stability for the practice or for the patient because they are coming to an environment that they are familiar with for majority of their treatment options. Uh, and it does something that definitely contributes to that patient experience. So how I, I love that you guys, you know, your patients are saying, I love that when I walk in, they know my name. I think that that is really important. I think that that's why, you know, some patients, you know, they put up a fight when they now have to use a PBM for, to, for their medication refills because they've learned that local pharmacist, that pharmacist knows their name, knows their family. And so they want to continue to go back because they get that experience and that personal touch. How do you train staff on customer service, you know, whether it be frontline, I mean, the first person they see when they walk in is probably patient access type of staff. Uh, How do you train them? So we have a pretty good training program at Highlands, which I know is it can be an obstacle for some practices to find, to carve out the time with your existing staff to be able to train people appropriately. But we have our, we have your full day of dedicated initial orientation, which is pretty standard. But for a lot of our positions, during their first week, they will be doing, spending the majority of their day uh, in in targeted courses for their their particular uh, department. Um, we do have a, an educational uh, kind of or a training room basically that's set aside and have key trainers identified in each department that will spend as much time as is needed depending on the role and kind of educating them on on that customer you know the the element of customer service or standard operating procedures for their particular arena whether it be scheduling or nursing procedures painting them a picture of different scenarios that can that can they can be confronted with whether it's in you know an irate patient or a patient who's dealing with grief. 
and educating those staff on, okay, who, what, what are, what's my role in this particular situation and what are the resources that I have available uh, in other parts of the company, whether it be spiritual care or financial counseling, uh, palliative care, whatever it is. It's, it's, so each staff member has a very good feel by the end of that initial training to know, okay, what, what do I have at my disposal? You know, how can I use the, all the, the repertoire that the company has to be able to deal with the situation? It's been effective. And part of that with the customer service is, is very solid. And, um, and we do actually have annual re- recaps on customer service for those you know, uh, high touch uh, areas that I've already referred to. Wow. I think that's really important. There's that constant, I mean, you can never really take your foot off the gas and that's from everything in value-based care to, you know, workflows that you put in clinically to even staff training because you put a workflow in place and it seems like a few months later, well, kind of veered away from it a little bit. You kind of have to revisit that. So I'd love that you guys are going back yearly and, and revisiting, okay, do we remember how to greet the patients and, you know, the information mm-hmm. that the patients want yeah. to hear when they're being roomed. And I think that's really great. And I think it's important for practices in any department where it's applicable to have their, I call it their you know, departmental Bible um, for, for lack of a better description for it. But it, you know, it's a collection of, it's a living document collection of up-to-date SOPs, you know, different, different um, uh, educational resources, but it's something that is constantly available for all staff during training, but also during the time that they're actually performing their daily, daily duties. So they have a reference point, but also gives managers a reference point for, for measuring performance, for disciplinary action, things like that. Um, I think it, it's a very, very important piece. And do you guys keep that on like a SharePoint or, or is it uh, binders that you're, you're having to update constantly? No, we keep it most for most departments. It's available digitally. Um, we just have it on a, on a network share, not not through SharePoint necessarily, but it it could be distributed through SharePoint or any any uh, um, a variety of electronic means. Um, there are certain roles that it makes sense for them to have a paper copy, but those are limited. So let's talk about you know I know you're an OCM and now you have your Humana project going, um, and you know we've already touched on how the expenses at the hospitals are somewhat out of our control. Um, what approach does your team, your physicians take for reducing hospital utilization ER visits? So we have, uh, we've been using the Navigating Cancer platform uh, in our triage department for, I think we've had it in place for about two years. Uh, we kind of got away from using the triage pathways. And, and because of that, we saw that our numbers in OCM were better than average, but that's, that, that still shows that there's a good deal, a uh, good room for improvement. We made a full-court press effort to put uh, triage pathways back in place in late 2018 and early 2019, um, and I was really happy to see on our two, the, uh, the fourth quarter 2018 feedback report that we got from, uh, from the OCM project, I was, I was really happy to see that we, were, uh, we had significant improvement uh, in those in those measures you're talking about, that being hospital admissions, readmissions, and ER use, saw you know some 25 percent improvement in some of those, and as high as 42 percent improvement in another. So that, that that's a big big piece of doing that. Um, I think that we also the presence of our palliative care program, um, having those two board certified physicians uh, and a couple of APPs and supporting staff. Um, available to to deal with that some of that population that helps with the hospital numbers, but also helps with hospice as well. That's actually a really interesting point. Your palliative care provider, so of course they're helping with the hospice, but because I bet they're managing those symptoms so well that that does you know equal 
less hospital utilization and ER visits because those symptoms are really being managed by that palliative care provider. It does. We um, we brought we uh, our first doc uh, from palliative care came through in 2015, but we really improved the program. Probably I want to say 2000, late 2016, early 2017, uh, and we saw a pretty decent improvement from our baseline numbers to. Uh, to the to the time frame when we actually had put more of a more of an emphasis on that palliative care program, uh, and it is the, the symptom management is huge. Our and our doctors from from just from a day to day patient care aspect, they love or the medical oncologist I should say they love having that resource because they're able to refer those patient those patient situations to someone who is you know, who is trained especially for that, and it frees up their day to be to be seeing more patients through with either hematologic or oncologic. Conditions, so it ultimately makes the clinic more efficient. It helps you succeed in that value-based care arena as well. So, if you could give advice to practices that are, you know, either they're trying to start conversations with payers in their market, or just really trying to make the transition to have that more value-based care approach, what kind of advice would you give them? So, this is it's a unique situation, being that I'm from, you know, coming from a practice at Northwest Medical Specialties where um, we were heavily involved in value-based care and, and built a program uh, and, and built several, several commercial projects and then coming to Highlands Oncology where we're part of OCM, but we're kind of still involved in some of the early efforts. I'd say the one thing that I, that I take away from both those uh, experiences is that practice transformation is it's a marathon, not a sprint. And that may be cliche, but it's absolutely true. Um, changing culture takes time. For business professionals in any industry, you know that that's true. And changing the, the culture of your practice from your traditional buy-and-bill type model to one that, that's value-focused value and patient-centric, it, it's, it, it's something that you're going to have bumps along the road. Um, I don't think value-based care is a project. Some people will treat it like a project. I don't even think it's a program where some people will, will call it a department inside your practice. Uh, I think it's a mission, uh, and I think it... It requires buy-in from every single person in the practice. Uh, and the way that that is accomplished is through that patient-centric approach that I referenced, but also a commitment to just impeccable quality. Reducing costs, you have to, it's, it's a tough one for practices because you have, now you have to look at your way that you generate revenue for your practice in a different light. You can't just look at margin. You can't just look at what the revenue is that's going to come in. You also have to take into account, okay, how can, you know, how can we maximize this for a value-based care environment and reduce that cost for the patient? I think it's also important to, to learn how to, or to master how to identify risk inside your practice, to look, to be able to understand um, your patient population and to understand who's going to be at higher risk for certain uh, procedures both in and outside of your clinic. I think you have to transform your management team. I think it goes back to that idea of having everybody bought in. Um, your managers, if you're, if you're an administrator inside your practice, you need to have your managers completely 100% bought into what you're doing as far as a vision of value-based care. They're the ones that are going to have that, that firsthand experience and that constant touch with the staff who are on the front lines. As an administrator, you're only going to be able to do that so much. It's really um, important that you have that management team on your side. The last piece of that, I would say, is probably a commitment to data and understanding that it is, it is absolutely vital to have a really, really solid comprehension uh, and ability to manipulate your data um, so, if you, so you can truly understand where, where you are as an organization. Um, it's always been important, but I think it's, it's more important now in a value-based arena than it has in anything else. Um, and I think in order for your practice to truly transform, 
all these values, all these things I just discussed have to be part of your practice's mission. And along with that, you have to have education, you know, consistent message to your staff. It has to go to all ears in the practice and it has to be repetitive. You have to just repeat and repeat and repeat. Because uh, as, as much as, as people who are in the value-based care arena are saturated with the information every day, your staff who are on the front lines, they don't, they don't have that same exposure to the concept. And so it does, need, it does require that repetition. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's probably some of the best <laughs> advice I've ever heard. I think that you are definitely a seasoned pro at this. And, and you know, down from the quote, I actually wrote it down because I'm going to use this forever. Value-based <laughs> care is not a department at your practice. It's a mission and a culture. Like, that is brilliant. That, I mean, that alone right there, I mean, tells practices that it's going to take a little bit more than hiring a couple people and having a department that you say, you know, your value-based care coordinator, like it's truly a mission and a culture. Well, thank you so much for being on today and sharing all of your knowledge. I I was very excited to do this call with you today because I knew that you would have so much great stuff to share. So thank you again for your time. Of course. Thanks for having me, Amy. I just want to thank you again for listening today and to get in touch with the American Journal of Managed Care, you can email them at info at AJMC.com or follow the journal on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate it.